Um, so if you're a, a regular here or church member here, uh, we, had a, we had a great discussion at our last church members meeting, didn't we? Um, a great discussion about church planting. Um, so we, we recognize that, that although God has been uh, very kind to us here in, in continuing to, uh, to, to grow us and, and, and the work of the gospel here, that actually that wasn't the case um, everywhere uh, across the island. Um, indeed, some of our island towns, we, we reflected, um, uh, are, are becoming almost gospel-free zones, you know, where, where those thousands of people across our island who are facing lost eternities without Christ have virtually no access to a gospel-proclaiming church. And, and, and we started a conversation, didn't we, about whether and how actually we here at Grace Church could, could plant and grow a church in, in one of these communities. That, that's how Grace Church started. Uh, of course, it started when, when uh, uh, Esther and I, a, a young family, 16, 16 years ago, yeah, um, uh, joined a tiny church of around five uh, elderly people um, and, and restarted a gospel work that had previously been all but snuffed out. And, and so we've been encouraging each other to talk uh, and, and pray together about whether we can do that again uh, somewhere else uh, on the island. We've, we've considered perhaps down in the South White, which seems to be a particularly poorly served area with the gospel um, at the moment. And we challenged each other, didn't we, um, even to consider whether we might be among those who could go you know, who could relocate, move home and resettle in another island town in in order to form a a core team to plant and grow a a, a local gospel church. Um, We we might be thinking that's a pretty risky gospel venture. (laughs) Um, But of course, preaching the gospel and planting new churches is in the very DNA of the mission that Christ has given us, isn't it? That's what Yerka and Kira, our gospel partners in the Czech Republic, are doing, isn't it? As they plant a new church in the city of Olomouc. That's what Ian and Lydia Goodson, our gospel partners in Wakefield, are doing as they are looking to plant a church on the Eastmore Estate. It's what Dan James and his family, you heard from them a couple of weeks ago while I was on holiday. It's what they're doing, isn't it? In beginning to plant and grow a church on the Ayersmonsel Estate in Leicester. Um, and if you're here on a holiday uh, this morning, perhaps that's a thing that you've been considering doing in your local church as well or have, been, or have done uh, in the past. And of course, all of those who have, who have done that, these gospel partners, have learned this from the book of Acts, which of course charts the outward spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. I think the book that really kicks, uh, the, the verse that really kicks off the book is chapter 1 and verse 8, where you might remember the risen Lord Jesus gives his great commission statement to his disciples, doesn't he? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then the rest of the book charts, doesn't it, that gospel expansion from its, its original base in Jerusalem out through Judea and Samaria and towards the ends of the earth. And Luke records this for us so that we, the generations of the church that follow, will get the idea, uh, get the idea not only about what the mission is to, to go and make disciples, but also of how we go about it which is that we proclaim God's word in the power of God's spirit so that local churches can be planted who then keep that gospel word going out in that community. The book of Acts is about gospel proclamation and planting churches. But we might say, well, you know, that, that, that might have been the strategy in the, in the first century, but this is the 21st century. 
Um, and, and places like, uh, uh, you know, uh, Olamotes or Wakefield or the, the Ayers Monsell Estate or indeed here uh, on the island or wherever you've come from, if you've come from the West today, if you've come from Europe, then that's not the home of Christianity anymore, is it? It's the home of secularism. You know, we live in a post-Christian Europe where, where we can expect more opposition than welcome, more rejection than acceptance. And so to try and plant and grow new gospel churches in that kind of environment... You know, with probably just a handful of, of mission-minded people sort of armed with their Bibles. Can that really cut it? Because it feels pretty sketchy and pretty risky and pretty vulnerable, doesn't it? Well, join me, if you will, over the next uh, few weeks uh, as we take a look at the Apostle Paul's kind of five-city church-planting tour here in chapters 16 to 20. Because these chapters, they mark... Uh, a bit of a milestone moment in the, in the outward movement of the gospel from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Because here is where the gospel comes to Europe. Um, uh, up until that time, the gospel is kind of uh, pushed out of, of Jerusalem through Judea, Samaria. It's pushed out into Gentile territory, into the, the kind of rural areas of, of Asia. But if you look back to, to verse 6 of chapter 16... We can find that Paul and Silas, they're on their, their second kind of gospel-preaching, church-planting trip. They've been diverted away from going into Asia, verse 6, away from heading up into Bithynia, uh, verse 7, and instead they're heading into Europe, courtesy of that famous vision that God sent, uh, verse 9, uh, uh, of this Macedonian man calling them across into Europe, into the region of Macedonia, into the city of Philippi. So now they're in pagan Europe, right? In a city with no Jewish synagogues to start preaching in, no, no people already versed in the Old Testament scriptures. It's a real low starting point where they are. There's, but look, verse 13, there's a few Jewish women down by the river praying. And they preach the gospel to them. And one of them, Lydia, responds to the gospel, verse 15, and she's baptized. And, and then invites, <coughs> excuse me, um, invites Paul and Silas into her home. And that, friends, believe it or not, is a milestone moment. Because the millions of people who have heard the gospel in the continent of Europe and become followers of Jesus Christ, the thousands of churches that have been planted in 2,000 years since Lydia, all began as the gospel reached one European woman who was then willing to use her home as a base for the advance of the gospel in her region. That's how it started. That's striking, isn't it? A toehold for the gospel is established in Europe by a tiny house church who were committed to reaching out with the gospel. I reckon that should give us great confidence, don't you? I reckon it should give great confidence to Grace Church Wakefield as they try and plant on the Eastmore Estate. I reckon it should give great confidence to Dan James and his core team of six as they seek to plant onto the Ayers Monsell Estate. Or to us as we seek to plant here again on the island with perhaps no more resources ourselves. Or, or for you, from wherever you've come from uh, this morning, it should give you incredible confidence if you're thinking about church planting yourself. It's a massive encouragement, isn't it? But how does the gospel fare in, in such places? You know, is, it, is the gospel kind of punching above its weight? 
to think that it can grow and flourish in such a pagan environment? Well, uh, I reckon it will come as no surprise to discover, as we will do this morning, that this milestone event in the spread of the gospel is quickly followed by opposition. Uh, Because, of course, first century Europe, just like 21st century Europe, is very much a gospel-free zone. It was pagan territory. And Satan is not going to give it up to the advance of the gospel without a fight. But as we dig into this passage a little bit, let's just see how the gospel fares in a climate like that. Because Luke has recorded this for us, of course, so that we too may realize what gospel opposition looks like, how the church responds to it, and how the gospel fares when it meets it. And I think we'll find that very helpful because our post-Christian Europe, as we'll see, is not so very different from this pre-Christian Europe that we see here. So let's just see how the gospel fares. Have a look with me firstly at verses... 16 to 18, where I think we see the gospel undermined. Um, Have a look at verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. So you'll notice uh, uh, Paul and Silas are going back to the place of prayer. That's the the place down by the river uh, where the Jews, the God-fearers, would would gather to to pray on the Sabbath in the absence of a synagogue. Um, It's the place where they first met with Lydia, shared the gospel with her back in verse 13. And and they're going back there, I guess, just just hoping to win someone else for Christ from, from among the people that were gathered there. In other words, they're just getting on with their gospel ministry. But you'll notice there's an issue this time in as much as they've kind of they've inherited a new fan, haven't they, in the form of this local slave girl. And, and she's following them around and calling out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation, which at first class might seem like a bit of a bonus, don't you reckon? You know, this slave girl, she's obviously a bit of a local celebrity, isn't she? She's got this reputation for telling fortunes and, and she's actually endorsing. Paul and his friends and and the message that they bring uh, as as coming from the most high God. Well, that's true. And as being the way of salvation. Well, that's true as well, isn't it? So surely this is like a bit of free publicity, isn't it? You know, this is like a celebrity endorsement. And and, and I think maybe Paul and the others thought so too for a while because they they let her continue doing this for several days. Verse 18. But you know that there's trouble with celebrity endorsements, isn't there? We've seen this a few times. They can be a bit of a disaster if your celebrity turns out to not project the image that you're looking for. We've had a few examples of that, haven't we, over the years? I I like the famous one involving David Beckham some years back, who was paid $6 million for promoting Brill Cream, you know, the the, the hair styling thing. And and, and the trouble was that halfway through his contract, he shaved his head. Okay, I don't don't think that's the look (laughs) that that, that a brand of hair cream uh, was was particularly looking to promote. So it's true, isn't it, that that who you get to endorse your product has a major effect on how people are going to view it. And so when we see the endorsement here of Paul and his gospel message by this particular woman, I don't think we'll see it as a a piece of helpful uh, free advertising, but rather as a piece of subtle opposition to the gospel. Because Luke uh, tells us here what I guess Paul and the others may not have discovered straight away, which is that this woman has, verse 16, a spirit of divination. In other words, an evil spirit 
who is enabling her to practice her clairvoyance, her her fortune-telling. And, of course, the Most High God doesn't want endorsements from evil spirits. He doesn't want people believing the gospel because someone with an evil spirit in them said they should. That would legitimize, wouldn't it, the person with the, with the evil spirit. If, if the clairvoyant was right about that, well, perhaps we ought to trust her over some other stuff she's saying as well. Do you see? It would be giving a credence to something which is ultimately anti-God. be a very subtle way, wouldn't it, of Satan being able to undermine the gospel. Now, we might think, well, that that kind of particular kind of unhelpful endorsement is is maybe not that common in in today's rather more secular uh, Europe, where where people perhaps give less credence to claims of being able to tell the future and so on. Well, that may be true, but there are other ways, aren't there, in which Satan can and does use what appear to be endorsements of the gospel to actually undermine it. Um, uh, 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 You may have noticed over the years several studies have, have happened which have indicated that people of faith are generally happier people than the secularists are. You've seen some of those studies? There was was one one report in 2015, put it like this, participating in a religious organization was the only social activity associated with sustained happiness. Well, that wouldn't surprise me at all, uh, to be honest. But we'd want to be very careful about how we use that kind of information, wouldn't we? Because, people, uh, because God doesn't want people to believe in Jesus because some studies suggest it makes you happier. No, God wants people to believe in Jesus on the basis of the message of the gospel. And, and so the message, come to Jesus so that you can be a statistically happier person, well, it, it may or may not be true, but it's not the gospel, and it won't save anyone. And, and, and so to call people to come to Jesus on such a basis has the effect, doesn't it, of actually undermining the true gospel. So you see the point. Even endorsements can actually be subtle tools in the hands of the enemy to, to, to undermine the gospel. And, and so I think that's why, pr- presumably after Paul discovered a, a bit more about the woman, he decided to take some action and, and put a stop to what was actually harmful Uh, uh, publicity. Verse 18, uh, Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out that very hour. So with Christ's authority, he expels the evil spirit, and so the subtle threat to the advance of the gospel has been dealt with, and, and quite possibly, I think this slave girl brought into the kingdom as a result. We're not told that, but it's not a bad assumption. So friends, do you see what's going on? That I think these verses are a little microcosm, actually, of what you can see all the way through the book of Acts and, and in the rest of this chapter, that Christ's messengers are just getting on with gospel ministry, that Satan is seeking to oppose and undermine uh, that ministry, but that Christ, through his messengers, by his spirit, is working to overcome the opposition and keep the gospel advancing. Do you see? And I, That's quite helpful, isn't it? As, as, as Paul and, and his tiny little church planting team here in Philippi are just getting on with both proclaiming and defending the gospel, well, the risen Lord Jesus is at work by his Spirit to the same end. And friends, what confidence that should give us as well, as we are about the same activity. 
But you'll notice, look, the unhelpful endorsement of the gospel, that's not the only kind of opposition that we see here, is it? Uh, Verses 19 to 24, I think we see the gospel slandered. This is more overt slander. Have a look at verse uh, 19. Uh, But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them to the marketplace before the rulers. And when they brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. So so we we saw, didn't we, verse 16, that this, this clairvoyant slave girl she owes her clairvoyance her fortune telling to the fact that she's possessed by an evil spirit a fact that was being exploited by her owners in order to make money out of her but of course now that Paul's cast out the evil spirit verse 19 her owners have lost their potential income and they're not happy (laughs) so they seize Paul and Silas they drag them up before the local authorities we can see why they're angry can't we But do you notice that when they complain about Paul and Silas to the authorities, they don't say that it's because Paul's cast out an evil spirit and lost them income. That's not what they say, is it? No, they say, verse 20, these men are Jews and they're disturbing our city and advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Now, where did they get all that from? Because that's slander, isn't it? These men are Jews, they say. Well, that's not true for a start. Timothy is half Jewish. Uh, Luke, who's with them, isn't Jewish at all. But they conveniently only seized Paul and Silas, who are Jews. They left the others. They're disturbing our city. I don't think so. Actually, their evangelism in Philippi has been very low-key. It's been down by the river among the the, the Jews and the God-fearers. Uh, if anyone's disturbing the city, it's been the owners of the slave girl, hasn't it? Kind of seizing Paul and Silas, make, making all this fuss. Um, they advocate customs that are not lawful for us Romans to accept or practice. Well, that's not true either. They've just been preaching the gospel, and it, and it wasn't unlawful for Romans to become Christians. But we can see what they're doing, can't we? They're, they're kind of uh, uh, creating a slanderous picture of these Christians as being distinctly Jewish, which they weren't, and distinctly anti-Roman, which they weren't either. And, and it's a strategy designed to kind of tap into the kind of uh, the, the anti-Jewish sentiments that, that were around in, in Roman culture and, and also tap into their pride as a Roman colony. But you can imagine the effect, can't you, that such slander would have on the reputation of Christians and the reputation of their message. You know, um, oh, you, you don't want to become one of those Christians. You know, it's only a Jewish thing anyway. And, and they only stir up trouble. They're only out to incite people to be unlawful. That's what they're about. Don't become one of them. And, and you know, friends, it, it, it seems to me that, that opposition to the gospel through slander, the slander of its messengers and its message, is pretty common in today's Europe as well, isn't it? Oh, you don't you don't want to be one of those Christians. They're they're narrow-minded, they're bigoted, they're intolerant, they're, they're just religious fundamentalists and so on. And of course, the effect of that kind of smear campaign against Christians 
It's, it's made it pretty difficult for us, hasn't it? Even to discuss Christian beliefs, you know, around sin and hell, for example, or around sexuality and gender, without, without being accused of being intolerant or bigoted or, or, or some such term. And it doesn't matter how much we might want to clarify or explain to people or how much we might want to invite someone to, to meet some of our Christian friends who are nothing like the disparaging descriptions of us, but we can't often even get a hearing, can we? And we feel the sting of being misrepresented. Of someone looking at us with that withering look. And saying, oh, you're one of those evangelicals, are you? And friends, this is because in every culture, in every society that the gospel is proclaimed into, it will confront certain aspects of that culture. And, and so when we seek to proclaim the gospel into a culture that worships the gods of, of expressive individualism or, or of sexual freedom, well, we shouldn't be surprised that the gospel confronts that culture and that the culture then reacts strongly against the gospel. And, and not only against the gospel itself, but against those who proclaim it. I think it's one of Satan's key strategies for opposing the outward spread of the gospel to sling mud at those who proclaim it, to, to misrepresent, if you like, both the message and the messenger. And, and you can see the effect of that here in Philippi, can't you? Have a look at verse uh, 22. The crowd joined in attacking them. The magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they'd inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Well, it looks, doesn't it, like the progress of the gospel in Philippi has stopped even before it started. You know, that they've had one convert, at least, Lydia, back in verse 14, maybe the slave girl as well. It doesn't look like they're going to get any more, does it? With, with the gospel and its messengers slandered, with Paul and Silas having been kind of tortured and banged up in the, the, the maximum security part of the, of the prison, well, what chance is there now of the people of Philippi hearing the gospel? And of course, it's not simply that they're in prison, but more fundamentally, the fact that the gospel itself has been misrepresented. Who's going to believe it now that, that so much mud has been slung at it? Well, actually, we've seen the gospel undermined and, and slandered. Have a look at verses 25 to 40. See the gospel defended. And, and have a look at verse 25, because this, this is a lovely verse. That I think this is an incredible verse. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. You get that? <laughs> Their first night in prison, and they're having a praise and prayer night. No puddings for them, but there's a praise and prayer night. I don't know whether I'd be doing that on my first night in prison. What about you? I, I, I can imagine feeling discouraged and, and confused uh, feeling that God had directed us here, you know, come over here and help us, verse 9, but here we are in prison, like, thanks a bunch, God. I can imagine feeling fearful, because prison in, in, in Paul's day wasn't the, the kind of final punishment that it, that it often is today. These were largely places where you went pending trial, and, and the outcome of the trial, if you were found guilty of being against Rome, was death. But here they are, praising God. 
But you see, friends, they knew very well by now that the outward spread of the gospel is a struggle. It's a battle with an enemy whose, whose aim is to stop the expansion of the gospel. And, and so, although they won't be relishing their, their situation, this kind of thing doesn't confuse them. It doesn't surprise them. They expect it. It's par for the course. And so, it doesn't deflect them from still being able to praise God. And, and look, they've got, a, they've got an audience as they do it. And, and do you see what that means? It means that because they can praise God in song and prayer, even in the midst of slander and unfair imprisonment, the gospel is still being commended. They are still being Christ's witnesses. Friends, what an incredible testimony to the gospel it is when Christians who are being undermined and slandered, who may even be facing death, just keep praising God and bearing witness to Jesus. What a testimony to the gospel that is. When despite what threatens us, we're not ashamed of the gospel, but we gladly, joyfully demonstrate how it's transformed us as, as we sing out and speak out the praises of the God of the gospel for everyone to hear. Now, there are, um, there are plenty of examples in history of, of Christians going to their death like this. But you'll notice that in this case, God has got other plans. He sends an earthquake, verse 26, uh, which results in prison doors opening, shackles falling off, which, of course, is great news for the prisoners, but it's not great news for the jailer, is it? Because the jailer assumes that everyone is now going to escape, which, he, which for him means trouble. And trouble for him doesn't mean they'll relieve him of a week's wages. It means they'll probably relieve him of his head or, or, or something like that. Which is why, verse 27, he's about to kill himself, which would have been probably a nicer death than the one his boss would have given him. Now, we might think, well, kind of tough luck for the jailer, maybe, but at least Paul and Silas get to escape, right? But no, look what happens, because this is like the worst prison break ever. Verse 28, Paul cries out to the jailer, don't harm yourself, we're all here. <laughs> In other words, they, they didn't escape, they stayed. That's quite striking, isn't it? But, but just think about it for a minute. If, if they had left, wouldn't that just have played into the hands of their slanderers? Who, who then could have said, see, Christians are people who break the law. That they are people with no respect for the authorities. Just see how they've, they've escaped from prison. So they might have succeeded in escaping and, and maybe fled somewhere else. But the reputation of the gospel in Philippi, well, that would have suffered, wouldn't it? So, friends, here's the point to notice, I think. And it's that even when being presented with the option to escape prison and possibly death, they make their decisions on what's best for the cause of the gospel. And so, although it might be better for them to take the opportunity to escape, it was better for the gospel if they stayed in prison. And so, they saw past their own circumstances to the issue which I think is at the heart of this uh, episode, which is not that their lives were at stake, but that the reputation of the gospel was at stake. And because their lives were of less importance to them than the reputation of the gospel, 
they acted to defend the reputation of the gospel. That's quite challenging, isn't it? So we see God's messengers acting to defend the gospel. But we can also see God himself acting to defend the gospel, can't we? Do you you remember that part of the way that the gospel was slandered was by its accusers saying these men are Jews. It it was a way of appealing to the kind of the anti-Semitic attitudes of the people in order to get them sort of whipped up into opposing Paul and Silas. And that's awful news for the gospel, isn't it? One of the key themes of of Acts, and and indeed the the purpose of the Jerusalem Council, if you remember, in chapter 15, was to specifically affirm that the gospel is not simply for the Jews. It's for the Gentiles as well. And so this slanderous accusation that it's just a Jewish thing, that's actually damaging for the gospel. But look at how God himself steps in to defend uh, his gospel. Look in um, verse 29. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night, washed their wounds. He was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into the house, set food before them, and rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Do you see the point? God answers the charge that this Christianity thing is just for Jews by bringing a Gentile pagan Philippian jailer to faith in Christ. (laughs) You see, he's not a Jew, is he? He's a Philippian. He's, He's one of them. And yet he's come to saving faith in Christ. So so how are they going to claim now that Christianity is just a Jewish thing when one of their very own has been converted? And and just notice how it happened. Because fundamentally, of course, it's happened as Paul responds to his question uh, in verse 31, what must I do to be saved? Paul responds to that by saying, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And and friend, let me just say to you that if you are here this morning and you're asking the same question, what do I have to do to be saved and, and to become a Christian? The answer to you is the same. You need to believe in the Lord Jesus. You need to trust, place your trust in the Lord Jesus. Of course, you might not know what that involves, and presumably, actually, neither did the Philippian jailer. And so Paul tells him, look, verse 32... By speaking the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. In other words, he opened up the scriptures and he proclaimed and explained the message of the gospel to him so that he could respond to it. In other words, he he would have explained who Jesus is. What Jesus came to do. What his death on the cross achieved. and, And what that saved this man from and for. And again, if you're not yet a Christian here this morning, but you're interested, like this Philippian jailer. You know, we we run a thing called Christianity Explored, which is designed to do just that, to explain to you the good news of Jesus Christ, so that you are in a position to respond to him by believing in him, so that you can be rescued, saved from the consequences of your sin. I'd encourage you to consider that with some urgency, if you haven't already. 
Of course, Paul here, um, he, he does a kind of impromptu Christianity explored, really, doesn't he? He just explains from the scriptures the message of the gospel. And you can see the result, look, in verses 33 and 34, was that the jailer believed. He, he trusted in God for his salvation, and he was straight away baptized along with his family. It's brilliant, isn't it? Here's another person brought into the kingdom and a clear demonstration right in the face of the slanderers that the gospel is not just a Jewish thing. It's for all who will believe in the Lord Jesus. It's not quite the end of the story though, is it? The jailer invites them to his home. Look, verse 34. They have a meal together. I bet that was a celebration, wasn't it, of the jailer's salvation? What a time, what a meal that would have been. And then they presumably returned to their cells. Because that's where they obviously were, verse 35, when the police came to say, the magistrates are letting you go. (laughs) And you'd have thought, wouldn't you, Paul and Silas would be like jumping for joy. You know, they've let us off. You know, let's get out of here before they change their minds. But no, once again, it's the reputation of the gospel that is uppermost in their mind. Have a look at verse 37. But Paul said to them, they've beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. Do you see Paul's concern? That the, the reputation of the gospel in Philippi has been slandered because of these events. Christ and his message has been misrepresented. And, and so for the sake of the gospel, he wants them to publicly come down and set them free. So that it, it's clear to everyone that to be a Christian is not to be a troublemaker. It's not to be an inciter of, of civil disobedience. Do, do you see? What, what the magistrates want to do, of course, is kind of typical politicians cover up, you know, just quietly send them on their way. Uh, but what Paul wants is for the reputation of the gospel to be reinstated. And he gets his way. The the magistrates were obviously afraid. Look, verse 38, when they heard that Paul and Silas were actually Roman citizens, that means they would have a a legal right of redress if any wrongs had been uh, committed against them. And and, and so the the politicians quickly realized they'd better apologize, and and so they do. Verse 39, and and the magistrates publicly escort them from the prison, uh, and they're exonerated from from all the accusations that were leveled against them. It's vindication for for the gospel. They, they are, you'll notice, asked to leave the city. I think that's probably to avoid further embarrassment to the authorities. And, and they, they readily agree to do that, further proving that they are law-abiding people. But only after, look, verse 40, they have further encouraged Lydia and the little house church that is now evidently meeting in her home. That's an amazing episode, isn't it? Just think about it. They, they've, they've only been in the city for a few days. And, and during those few days, Satan's been throwing all kinds of opposition at them. From, from the subtle undermining of the gospel through to the, the not-so-subtle slander of the gospel. But, but friends, through it all, God has been at work. And a little house church has been planted in Philippi. You know, the church members are a bit of a, a motley bunch. Comprising a, a businesswoman, a, a slave girl. A jailer, maybe one or two others. But friends, God's word is doing its work and it's gathering God's people. 
Oh, sure, it might be tiny now, but it will keep growing and flourishing, won't it? Just read Paul's letter to the Philippians and you can see that. And and so, friends, for us, for, for us who are the missionary church planters to 21st century Europe, I think we can be so encouraged by this report from first century Europe, can't we? As as we talk and pray and and maybe even relocate in order to gather a little core team of of church planters to plant again here on the island. Or maybe as you talk about that, if you're here on holiday, maybe as you talk about that in your local church setting. Friends, can we not be confident too? Oh, 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 times have changed for sure, but the strategies of Satan that we see here, they're still very much the same, aren't they? He is still in the business of trying to subtly undermine the gospel and of trying to more overtly slander the gospel and its messengers. But friends, that shouldn't faze us. We should be expecting it. It's always been thus. But friends, we should also expect that God will continue to do his work through his word by the power of his spirit to overcome the strategies of the evil one and continue to, to defend and protect his gospel as he's always done. Paul and Silas knew this. That's why they weren't put off, but why they just kept preaching the gospel wherever God put them, whether that was in a synagogue or the riverbank or a prison cell or after an earthquake, they just kept preaching the gospel. And friends, no strategies of Satan, no mud he can throw at the church can possibly scupper the sovereign purposes of God to see the gospel taken to the ends of the earth. Take encouragement from that, friends. And let's take challenge from it as well, shall we? Because the other thread running through these verses is the constant priority of the gospel in the lives and the decisions of its messengers. Who put the proclamation and the reputation of the gospel first, even when it pushed them out of their comfort zones, to the point of risking their own lives. And there's a challenge here for us, isn't there, friends, about the level of our gospel concern? What our actions in public say about that at school or at work or with with our friends or our family? Are we prepared to refute gently slanderous accusations about the gospel? Or, Or do we just like to keep quiet and remain popular? How does gospel concern shape the decisions we make and the actions we take? Will we put our necks on the line? Or at least will we step out of our comfort zones for the one who gave his all for us? Encouragement and challenge from God's word. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, thank you so much for reminding us that there's no opposition that Satan sends either in 1st century Europe or 21st century Europe or anywhere else that can foil your plans to take the gospel to the ends of the earth as your people preach Christ and plant churches. So please, would your word encourage us and challenge us, we pray. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.